I never stopped recording and I did talk about what just happened. I didn't stop recording so, either. So, <laughs> okay, hold on. Keep recording. Okay. Let me, I'm going to quit FaceTime and then I'm going to call you. Okay. Back. Unbelievable. Mercury retrograde <laughs> horse <laughs> shit. Oops. Okay, there you are. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> it's Mercury, girl. It's Mercury. God, I know. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your list, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be there. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Also, hi, this is Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. <laughs> we do a podcast about ladies that was that is not safe for work. Um, that is, uh, non-scholarly. It's just two people talking excitedly about someone they researched a little bit and think is cool. Yeah, I think that's, that says it well. And it's interesting because we started this podcast, um, in a sort of recent post-Trump sadness haze. And, um, now we are in a Biden administration and it's, weird like it's just weird to think that we've not been... in a bad way no but it's kind of funny that we've we've seen all of that and we've sort of like documented all of that you know mm-hmm. our feelings throughout everything that's happened since 2017 yeah, this podcast is almost four years old yeah i know or maybe it, it is it was february of 2017 <gasps> that we recorded our first episode oh my god you're right so, Wow. Here here we are. Didn't we do, didn't you and I do like a Valentine's Day slash uh, GWBB like first meeting or something at a vegan restaurant Did in we? Brooklyn? No, it was not a vegan restaurant and it wasn't in Brooklyn. It was the Grey Dog in Manhattan. Wait. There are a few locations of the Grey Dog. When did we go I to, remember cause was it Modern Love? When did we do that? The cheese plate? And you wore... Maybe that was after we decided. I had my Futures female sweatshirt at our Grey Dog meeting. Oh, my God. We had a, a meeting over some wine to, like, initially discuss, like, you came to me and you're like, I have this idea. I want to do it. And I want to do it with you. How would you feel wow. about it? And I said, great. And I was wearing the right sort of shirt. And then we did go to Modern Love. But I think that was after we decided we were going to do it when we wanted to hammer down some details. Okay. Okay. See, it's already been so long. I can't even remember what we did and where we did it. (laughs) Anyway, the Grey Dog is awesome in New York City. That's true. Um, They employ a lot of actors, and uh, if people want to go there, they have a lot of vegan options. They have a lot of like gluten-free friendly options. They have good down-home food. And Modern Love is a vegan restaurant in Brooklyn that is also fucking fantastic, if not a little expensive, but fantastic. And we deserved it that day. If I we say did. so myself. We did. Yes. I can't wait to go to vegan restaurants with you again. I know. <laughs> oh, COVID. Um, <laughs> so let's move on. Let's dive into Milady. I, I want to talk about somebody I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and it feels um, really appropriate to be talking about her now, not just because of Black History Month, but because of 
just everything that's been going on election-wise in the last four years, but also recently. Um, And there's another milestone that happened recently that I think makes her even more exciting to talk about now. So um, I'm going to talk about Octavia Butler. Do you know that name? Okay. No. It's okay. I don't think so. She, I don't think I do. She's a science fiction writer. Oh. And you probably have at least heard of some of these books that I'm going to talk about that she wrote. Um, but the other reason that I wanted to talk about her is that she um, is responsible for a lot of really amazing science fiction that people have talked about for years but don't realize like is attributed to her um or and they don't put her in the same category as like other classic you know sci-fi white male sci-fi writers and and even female sci-fi writers like I think that she would go next to like Margaret Atwood in terms of time um like the time that they both started coming up um, in the industry, but also just like the types of things that they write. But we know Margaret Atwood, like we know The Handmaid's Tale, and mm-hmm. we don't necessarily know Octavia Butler as we well. We read it in school. That's right. And so that is um, just kind of a a brief insight into why I wanted to talk about her. But um, yeah, I guess to dive in, some of my sources are um, a mental floss listicle. Um, a New York Times article from just a couple weeks ago by Stephen Kearse. Um, she did a talk for MIT in 1998 at MIT. Like Octavia did? Octavia did. And um, that is like recorded in full on MIT's website. So I took some pieces from oh. her speech from that. And I'll, I'll have that in our show notes. BBC.com, an article by Hepzibah Anderson and an article in The New Yorker by Abby Aguirre. So this is from the BBC article, and I just really love this as an opener. It says, and this was written in 2020. So it's campaign season in the U.S., and a charismatic dark horse is running with the slogan, quote, make America great again. According to his opponent, he's a demagogue, a rabble rouser, a hypocrite. When his supporters form mobs and burn people to death, he condemns their violence in such mild language that his people are free to hear what they want to hear. He accuses, without grounds, whole groups of people of being rapists and drug dealers. How much of this rhetoric he actually believes and how much he spouts, quote, just because he knows the value of dividing in order to conquer and to rule is at once debatable and increasingly beside the point as he strives to return the country to a simpler bygone era that never actually existed. You might Mm. think he sounds familiar, but the character in question is Texas Senator Andrew Steele Jarrett, the fictional presidential candidate who storms to victory in a dystopian science fiction novel titled Parable of the Talents. Written by Octavia E. Butler, it was published in 1998, two decades before the inauguration of the 45th president of the United States. What the fuck? (laughs) And I will say, Make America Great Again was actually Reagan's slogan, which is why Trump took it. And it's also something that Octavia clearly understood to mean something very different than what a lot of people understood it to mean at the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, 
yeah, something extremely specific. <laughs> and um, I think it's more obvious today than maybe it was in Reagan's era, though I, I didn't. I wasn't cognizant then. So <laughs> right. I wasn't alive. You alive. Then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it's I, I have these moments where. And forgive me, mom, but when she says stuff like, well, you have to remember it was the time. And I go, no, there were people back then who still knew it wasn't OK. Yeah. And I think Octavia Butler It was just Butler more knew. socially a- a- accepted. Right. But it's like in 2016, I think a lot more people knew when Trump said, make America great again, what that fucking meant. Right. And it felt a lot more like what this writer just described from Octavia's novel from two decades prior. I can't. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. And 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 I guess that's the other reason why I brought up Margaret Atwood, because we talk a lot about Margaret Atwood having, you know, a spooky, you know, prophecy like um, feeling to The Handmaid's Tale. And I think Octavia also had that (laughs) maybe in even Mm. greater quantities in um, her parable series. And um, we don't talk about that (laughs) um at least we we talk about it less than we should so yeah like much of her writing butler's book was a warning about where the u.s and humanity in general might be heading in some respects we've beaten her to it a sequel to 1993's parable of the sower parable of the talents is set in what is still our future 2032 While its vision is extreme, there is plenty that feels within the bounds of possibility. Resources are increasingly scarce. The planet is boiling. Religious fundamentalism is rife. The middle classes live in walled-off enclaves. The novel's protagonist, a black woman like the author herself, fears that Jarrett's authoritarianism will only worsen matters. But... Octavia Butler wasn't always a prophet. (laughs) In her lifetime, she was an award-winning, standards-shattering science fiction writer whose books were immensely popular at that strange crossroads uh, between the civil rights movement and everything that came after. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hepzibah says, I like this, this like snapshot of her. She writes, in her author photos, Butler appears a serious woman with an exceptionally penetrating gaze. At a talk she gave in Washington, D.C. in 1991, later reported in the radical feminist periodical Off Our Backs, she offered a fuller description of herself, quote, comfortably antisocial, a hermit in the middle of Los Angeles, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a black woman, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, certainty, and drive. That's really relatable, though. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I really liked that a lot. Ambition and laziness are like two qualities that I... I mean, I, 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 they war with uh, each other, right? Like, I feel that a lot. <laughs> for me, I would say ambition and exhaustion, and oh. I would, I would wager to say that's probably the case with her as well. But oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> and for a lot of people, you are not alone <laughs> right now. No, I'm certainly not special in that feeling. I think it was I, I, a friend sent me um, a tweet from like a psychologist or something who was saying that um, right about now is when we all are are actually burning out in a way that we weren't like as much in danger of doing last year because we were all so on guard and now that mm-hmm. 
things have finally like we're you know obviously there's a lot of work to be done but having trump out of the white house i think made a lot of us go ah and now we're just Mm. now it's like that feeling when you get sick after having been go 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 and then you take a vacation and you just get totally sick that's what it feels like yep anyway (laughs) so uh wikipedia helped me out for this this next little part with all the all the details and i like well I'll, i'll just read Octavia Estelle Butler was born June 22nd, 1947, in Pasadena, California, the only child Ah. of Octavia Margaret Guy. So she took her mom's name, which I love, a housemaid. Was she given that name or was that her pen name? I think she was given that name. I didn't see anywhere that it was a pen name. It's a great name. I know. It's such a good name. And I love that, like, her mom was like, yeah, you can have my name. That's that's fine. Maybe someone will know. I feel know. like that's more common. I think that's more common with men than it is with women. Exactly. I, I just felt like a, it just felt like a fun matriarchal, you know. Legacy. Kind of thing. Bullshit. <laughs> someone will probably e- email me and say, you know, that was her pen name, right? But <laughs> if it's, if it is, I couldn't, I didn't find that info. So, um, so her mom was a housemaid and her dad was a shoeshine man who died when she was seven. So she was raised by her mom and her maternal grandmother in a very strict Baptist environment. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I did. I don't associate. And I know Alex is going to hear me say this, but I don't associate Pasadena, California with Baptist Christianity. Yeah. Is that a common thing? Okay, he said I don't know. So, okay, I don't sound stupid saying that. <laughs> I'm not I'm not entirely sure and um supposedly the area where she lived was also integrated, which is interesting cuz at at the time obviously segregation was still pretty much in Huge. full force. Um mm-hmm. so that was something that she also had that a lot of other black children across the country didn't experience. And so she had For sure. Yeah, she had a pretty interesting upbringing in that way especially because her mom as a housemaid would take octavia with her to jobs sometimes and so they would go from their like integrated neighborhood to these jobs where they were forced to use the back door to enter the house you know or the or the servants quarters um the servants entrances to go in and out and it like i can't even imagine how confusing that must have been as a child. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just super, it's just super interesting. And from an early age, she suffered from like paralyzing shyness. She could not, she mm. just could not socialize with the other kids. And she also had a mild case of dyslexia. She was like mildly dyslexic. And so it made schoolwork really fucking hard. It made kids bully her and it led her to believe that she was quote ugly and stupid and clumsy and socially hopeless, which is just heartbreaking. It's so sad. Oh my god. And oh, so as a result, baby. I know, but I I think that like it started something really special because she spent most of her time at the Pasadena Central Library reading <laughs> when she wasn't doing her homework. And she had a big pink notebook that she would just like fill with, you know, writing. Didn't matter what it was, journals, stream of consciousness, st- short stories, like she just filled that sucker up. 
and she read she first loved fairy tales and horse stories but very quickly became interested in science fiction magazines like amazing stories galaxy science fiction and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction which i think i think most of those if not all are still in uh circulation and she started reading Mm -hmm. stories by lauded science fiction writers you know primarily white men um but i don't think what? Uh, yeah, weird. I don't think she thought much of it at the time because when she first started experimenting with writing short stories, she was very much writing in the tradition that she had learned from those men, from reading those men. Um, but she soon graduated from her big pink notebook to a Remington typewriter that her mom bought for her. And, mm-hmm, and I love this because it reminds me of something you were saying earlier before we started recording about how much bad how much bad writing gets like you know produced in the world in lots of different forms um she watched a um she watched a movie a science fiction film from 1954 called devil girl from mars and Uh she said in her mit talk in 1988 As I was watching this film, I had a series of revelations. The first was that, geez, I can write a better story than that. And then I thought, gee, (laughs) anybody can write a better story than that. (laughs) (laughs) And my third thought was the clincher. Somebody got paid for writing that awful story. (laughs) So I was off and writing. The strength of my head nods right now. (laughs) People can't see it, but... But it's so, it's just like, oh, it's happening. That's so relatable and it's still so true. Um, and a year later, I was busy submitting terrible pieces of fiction to innocent magazines. <laughs> you can just hear that she's a writer. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's so good. So in that same, in that same MIT speech, um, I just, I really liked this portion of it. She writes, or said, um, I was very lucky to be born just in time for the space race to build public support for education. All of a sudden, there was plenty of money for education. All of a sudden, there were plenty of supplies, for instance, for science education. I was speaking at a university last year. Remember, that would have been 97. Um, I think it was the University of California. And a young woman said that she was going to be a science teacher. She was already teaching, actually. And they had one microscope for the entire science class. And I can remember being in a science class where everybody had a microscope. And it was because the Russians were coming. And we had to do something about it. (laughs) We had to prepare this generation coming up to do something about those evil Russians. Sometimes, I guess, good things happen for bad reasons. But the good thing really was that I found out a lot about science that I might not otherwise have found out about. Um, And that was also a big part of why she picked science fiction versus fantasy. You know, she just had Hmm. this, she had, it was like the perfect storm of um, circumstances for her to pick it. So, yeah. It's weird because it's it's like giving me speaking of of going way back um, elements of when that astronaut read Wrinkle in Time. Yes. But like reversed. Uh It's like she learned about science and it made her a writer. Yeah. Whereas like she read about sci fi and wanted to become an astronaut. Yeah. Isn't that that cool? I I love that you make that parallel because I thought about that, too. Um, 
And oh my gosh. That was like episode three. Yes, that's it, it's it's a lot like that, just but in reverse. Um, after graduating from John Muir High School in 1965, Butler worked during the day and attended Pasadena City College at night. And as a freshman at PCC, she won a college-wide short story contest, earning her very first income as a writer, $15, which I don't Ooh, know how much that was. Yeah, I mean, I, back then it probably was closer to like at least $75, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she also got the, quote, germ of the idea for what would become her novel, Kindred, which is one of her most famous novels. To, still. Um, a black classmate involved in the black power movement loudly criticized previous generations of African Americans for being subservient to whites. And as Butler explained in later interviews, the young man's remarks were a catalyst that led her to respond with a story providing historical context for the subservience, showing that it could be understood as silent but courageous survival. And um, yes. that was really where she started to ex- start to explore themes of like humanity and hierarchies like in human survival and what it means to be human in her writing and what it means to be human for certain types of people like black people versus white people and um yeah it yeah. was that was a that was a really um interesting moment for her and she the remembered human it experience being different for different people wow yes. imagine what a concept i know it, white people for a long time couldn't <laughs> they couldn't imagine that a lot of them still can't. <laughs> a lot of them still can't. So throughout the 1970s, she honed her craft as a writer, finding through a class with the Screenwriters Guild in L.A., um, a mentor in sci-fi veteran Harlan Ellison, and then selling her first uh, short story while attending the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop, which is still a big deal workshop today. Like, if you go to Clarion as a writer, that's like... It's it's a big deal, especially, I mean, obviously, in, really? in, mm-hmm, in sci-fi fantasy spheres, because that's like, it's like the Iowa Writers Workshop, but for science fiction and fantasy. I don't know. Some people will know what I'm saying. God, publishing is so ins- I, insular. I and, only marginally do. It's okay. That's, that's, that's okay. That's like, dumb, dumb shit. Dumb publishing shit. Anyway, um supporting herself no. variously as a dishwasher, a telemarketer, uh and my personal favorite oh. and ins- uh, was uh, I'm sorry, as someone with crippling shyness, being a telemarketer, are you kidding me? I feel like telemarketer would be okay cuz you can't see the other person you're talking to. You're just like okay, getting What's on the phone. What's your personal favorite? <laughs> you're getting on the phone and you're just being like, "Hey, I know you're going to hang up on me in 2 seconds, but I need a paycheck, so you know?" Um but my personal favorite is that she was an inspector at a p- potato chip factory. <laughs> oh, can I have that job? <laughs> I don't think she got to eat them. I think all she did was look at them and oh, make sure damn. that they were like not burned or damn. not, you know, fallen on the floor. And, you know, I don't know. Um, but as she did those jobs, she would be up at 2 a.m. every day to write. So she would support herself during the day, and then she would wake up at 2 a.m. to get her writing done. And after five years of this, oh, yeah. How how do people do that? Dude, I don't know. (laughs) Some people don't need sleep. 
I guess I do. Yeah. I I know you do. I get up pretty early compared. You, know, you get up early, but you go to bed early, too. Yeah, I go to bed early, but I do As write I know, first thing. Whenever I would crash at your house, <laughs> it would be like me and Ben hanging out yeah. until one or two in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And you going to bed at 930. I definitely, like, okay, I fell asleep at nine for sure last night. It was just, I don't know. I just got tired. But you write first thing. But I write first thing, but I don't write at 2 a.m. Um, so that's, she's special in that way. So. Yeah, that's. Yeah. yeah. After five years of rejection slips, she sold her first novel, Pattern Master in 1975, and when it was published the following year, critics praised its well-built plot and refreshingly progressive heroine. It imagines a distant future in which humanity has evolved into three distinct genetic groups, the dominant one telepathic, and introduces themes of hierarchy and community that would come to define her work. It also spawned a series with two more books, Mind of My Mind and Survivor, following um, Before the Decade's End, so before 1980. The $1,700 advance that Survivor earned her, she took a trip east to Maryland, the setting for a novel that she wanted to write about a young black woman who travels back in time to the deep south of 19th century America. Having lived her, okay. yeah, having lived her entire life on the West Coast, she traveled by cross-country bus, which is like a long-ass fucking trip, um... And it was during a three-hour yeah. wait at a bus station that she wrote the first and last chapters of what would become Kindred. And she was paid $5,000 for it. And that $5,000 advance allowed her to quit her weird jobs and um, start writing full-time. Which is always a good feeling, I would think. Oh, my God. Well, that's all any writer wants. <laughs> I feel like... That's all any actor wants, uh, too. Yeah. I, I mean, it's... It, really sucks to have to tell writers i know that we just sold your book but don't quit your day job because it's not gonna feed you it's gonna be really cool and it'll be an extra like you know chunk of cash for a minute but the odds are that you probably cannot consider this a full-time career until you've been doing this for a long time and she had to sell three books in order to do that. And I would say even like these days, it's more than that, you know, and, wow. and there are lots of people who just who publish continuously and never quit their day jobs. You know, wow. and it just it is what it is. But she was really lucky. She got her break and she was able to she was able to do that and write full time. Um, so that article for the New York Times was called The Essential Octavia Butler, and it's basically just like an overview of all of her books. Um, and so Stephen Kearse wrote that, and he said, about Kindred, um, Butler takes time travel, one of speculative fiction's oldest and most overdone premises, uh, and infuses it with lasting depth and power, where stories about American slavery are often gratuitous, reducing its horror to explicit violence and brutality. Kindred is controlled and precise. Butler stages slavery as a site of pain and violation, as well as community and resilience. Dana, the protagonist, slips back and forth against her will between her life in 1976 Los Angeles and a Maryland plantation before the Civil War. In Butler's hands, the slaves and slave owners Dana meets and befriends, nurtures, protects, and betrays 
become individuals rather than historical abstractions. The book is a marvel of imagination, mm. empathy, and detail, speculative fiction at its best. That is quite a review. It's quite a review, especially in 2021. You know, I think that like sometimes we can look at fiction from the 70s and 80s and go like, well, it's dated, you know, it doesn't feel realistic yeah. now. It doesn't feel I don't want to read it because it's not um, doesn't really talk about my experience anymore. But um, right. that just is not the case with her books. And that's one of the reasons why she's so like her work is so long lasting and so relevant even more so now than it used to be. Um, so the 1980s would bring a string of awards, including two Hugos, the science fiction awards ceremony first established in 1953. And they also saw the publication of her Xenogenesis trilogy, which was spurred by talk of winnable nuclear war during the arms race. And yeah, and probes the idea that humanity's hierarchical nature is a fatal flaw. Um, uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because they're about like this, like this alien race seeing humans and saying like, "This is a problem that you have. We're gonna help you. We're gonna basically create a new species." that doesn't have that so you humans are gonna you know do some things with us and we're gonna like get rid of that problem for you yeah i feel frequently like the the sci-fi notion i don't even know if it's technically sci-fi but the idea that like we haven't encountered alien species because they're more advanced than we are and they kind of have taken stock of what's going on here and are like that's uh no <laughs> no no thank you no thank you <laughs> no thank you <laughs> don't want to deal with that i would not be shocked they're not very evolved <laughs> would not be surprised um and yeah she she wrote several books in that trilogy she wrote several books in that trilogy haha <laughs> she wrote three it's a it's a trilogy so um yeah she wrote uh, three of them um so <laughs> wow i love you oh my god so yeah so obviously that was a trilogy so she explored that but also explored like the idea of the humans fighting back against those aliens and then the new species of aliens that are created to get rid of this flaw and like all of the questions that come with you know all of that <laughs> it's too in-depth for, I guess, me to actually go into too much. But it's just, like, it's just super interesting. And, yeah. um, yeah, over the decades as she was writing Kindred, the Patternist books, and her Xenogenesis trilogy, she was filling personal journals with affirming mantras. She'd write, I am a best-selling writer. Uh, I write best-selling books. She closes as she was writing them up, like, all up through the 90s. Um... She'd say, so be it, see to it. And she was still talking to herself mm -hmm. in this manner, like after she'd won Hugo Awards and Nebula Awards, which were science fiction's highest honors. She'd write, wow. I shall be a best-selling author, so be it, see to it. Um, in her lifetime, that didn't actually happen, shockingly. 
she it's crazy because she was lauded um she had awards she was well known people loved her books but she never actually made a new york times bestseller list i will say i don't think that the new york times bestseller list is just about bestsellers so you know who knows why they didn't ever include a book from her but um, by the time she began working on the Parable books in 1989, she was in her 40s and had written nine novels. The Parable series, she decided, would be her, quote, if this goes on story. Um, in colorful diagrams, she extrapolated her vision of a near future dystopia from what she read in the news. So that's the if this if that go- if this goes on, um, like if shit as it is happening now keeps happening then this is what i foresee the way that it is this yeah is what's gonna end up yeah yeah um so she forecasted what kind of collapse might result if the forces of late stage capitalism climate change mass incarceration big pharma gun violence and the tech industry continued unhampered yeah hide your face hide it <laughs> hide it from the truth butler took a cyclical mm. view of history she also thought social progress was reversible, which like that line gives me chills. It is. Uh-huh. I think we've it seen. It clearly is. I think we've seen a lot of that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, very like chilling line. Um, and as the public Oof. sphere no, became. I legit just got chills up my spine. I know. Mm-hmm. It's so just like he, seeing it written out like that, that social progress is reversible is a thing you never want to think <laughs> could be true and mm-hmm. yet um and of course like she was writing these books almost as a cautionary tale like it is true but i hope we don't make it true here's my book that maybe will give us you know some idea of what Serve we're up as against a warning <sighs> so yeah <sighs> so the sequel of parable of, to parable of the sower Parable of the Talents was published in 1998 and begins in 2032, as we talked about earlier. By then, various forms of indentured servitude and slavery are common in her story, facilitated by high-tech slave collars. The oppression of women has become extreme. Those who express their opinion, called nags, might have their tongues cut out. Oh, boy. People are addicted not only to designer drugs, but also to dream masks, which generate virtual fantasies as guided dreams, allowing wearers to submerge themselves in simpler, happier lives. News comes in the form of discs or news bullets, which, quote, purport to tell us all we need to know in flashy pictures and quick, witty, verbal one-two punches. 25 or 30 words are supposed to be enough in a news bullet to explain either a war or an unusual set of Christmas lights. Um, did she predict tweets? <laughs> exactly. 25 or 30 words. Ugh, she did. Or clickbait? I mean, she basically did. Yeah, that's that's exactly what she's writing about. the whole thing. It's like people repost these news articles just reading the headline and not actually reading the article. Yep. Yep. So she saw that um, and the Donner administration, which is the administration that comes to power in the first book, 
has written off science, but a more immediate threat lurks. A violent movement is being whipped up by a new presidential candidate, Andrew Steele Jarrett, a Texas senator and religious zealot who is running on a platform to make America great again. (laughs) I agree. I agree. In Butler's prognosis, humans survive through an intricate logic of interdependence, and soon after leaving her family's walled neighborhood of middle class and working poor, uh, Butler's main character, Lauren, discerns that her natural allies are other people of color, including mixed race couples, since they are likely to become, they are more likely to become targets of white violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's nothing uh, that really upsets white supremacists more than what they consider to be race traitors. Oh, yeah. Like even more than people of color. Oh, yeah. White people <laughs> who the are... white people who empathize and sympathize and all the above. And marrying and... and... Who, who create mm-hmm. life and and want to establish a life with a person of color and... Yep. Ah. Yep. Ah. Um, she read a, a short excerpt from Parable of the Talents at her MIT... Um, speech so I want to read it it says beware all too often we say what we hear others say we see that uh, we see what we are permitted to see much worse we see what we're told that we see repetition and pride are the keys to this to hear or to see even an obvious lie again and again and again is to say it almost by reflex and then to defend it because we have said it and to embrace what we've defended Thus, without thought or intent, we make mere echoes of ourselves and we say what we hear others say. Super good. Yeah, this like blows Margaret Atwood out of the water. Like, <laughs> right? Right? Like not to diminish her accomplishments or her work because they are also very on the nose mm-hmm. and very important. Yeah. And I... But holy shit. Yeah. I mean, I've read Margaret Atwood's, like, apocalyptic books, not just Handmaid's Tale, but the Oryx and Crake books. And there's lots that she also gets right, you know, having written those stories before a lot of these things that we have now were real. But, yeah. She's also a best-selling author and well-respected and taught in schools. and Right. So she's gotten the praise that she deserves. Yes. Yes. And I think, I mean... In her lifetime. <laughs> Octavia received lots of praise, thankfully, from her, from, like, the publishing community. Like, the the publishing community understood, I think, at least in part, what they had with her because they, you know, gave her awards that she clearly deserved. Um, and in 1995, she actually became the first science fiction writer, period, to be awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, which is a grant. Oh, and, yeah. And um, the yeah, I mean, it it's they call it they nickname it the Genius Grant for people who yeah. are just like so magnificent, um, whose writing is so good that <laughs> they are awarded this grant to continue creating that work. And so before yeah, her... Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda has gotten the MacArthur Grant. There you go. Before her, no science fiction writer had received it. So, you know, her community... Really? Mm-hmm, like, her, her publishing community, and, and I, would, I would think probably black readers understood what they had, but for whatever reason, yeah, the world at large, we, they, like, that bubble didn't expand to include it in her time. 
Um, so she's not alive anymore. Right. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. But she did okay. die in 2006. Um, okay. So the grant, she'd hoped, would enable her to finish four more books for the Parable series. But the story became too fucking depressing for her to continue she was just like i can't i just can't do it so i love this she changed course i can imagine uh, yeah she changed course and she wrote a vampire novel which is so cool and i need to read it i've never heard of it fledgling and that came out in 2005 so i fucking love vampire novels. i know <laughs> So I need to read that because obviously a vampire novel by Octavia Butler is going to be brilliant. So the following year, she died unexpectedly at the age of 58 uh, when she fell and yeah, hit her head. Say. Yeah, she had a fall oh, no. and, and hit her head. And, and I think she had a stroke as a result. But in her lifetime, oh she insisted that the parable series was not intended as an augur, as a prophecy. She said, this was not a book about prophecy. Um, this was a cautionary tale, although people have told me it was prophecy. All I have to yeah, say to bad. that, <laughs> all I have to say to that is, I certainly hope not. Oh, 1998. Dude. That's what she said about it. <sighs> Crazy. So... In September 2020, more than 14 years after her death in February 2006, at the age of 58, she finally achieved her goal of becoming a New York Times bestseller with Parable of the Sower. September well, 2020. Because it was prophecy. Because people were understanding that what she had written had come to pass. <laughs> and... People started talking about it. And I do think that um, Ava DuVernay is making one of her novels. I can't I can't remember which one, but I think Ava DuVernay is, has something, the film rights to something. Um, and there's another. Okay. Yeah. And there's another Please? one of her of her books that has been optioned. So people ha are starting to discover her in wider spheres than just the writing and, and reading community. But. It's taken a long time. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. And sometimes I guess it does. Sometimes it does. I It breaks my heart that she never got to see her name on that list, especially because in all of her, you know, affirmations, she wasn't writing, I'm going to win a Nebula. I'm going to win a Hugo. So I'm sure like while those things were fantastic and, and great honors for her, what she really wanted was to be a bestseller. And she was, I'm sure, but in ways that weren't recorded. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think um, a lot of those lists, they pick and choose who they want to actually put on it. And sometimes it's people who aren't actually selling all that well. And that means that it's at their discretion, you know, putting somebody who's selling well on those lists or not. And if if it doesn't, make them money to put an Octavia Butler book on the list, then they probably weren't going to do it back then. Um, hmm. And yeah, a lot has been said about the quote algorithm that New York times uses to determine its bestsellers. And uh, I would not be surprised. You mean it's not just who's selling the best. I do mean that. Yep. <laughs> Shockingly, that is not always what it's about. 
And I don't know what it's about. Most of us don't know what else it could be about, but because New York Times won't tell us. But uh, yeah, so it's interesting, but I think they righted that wrong at least, you know, 14 years later. And that's pretty incredible. So that's Octavia Butler. I want to read her stuff. I think you should. Clearly, Kindred okay. is is a big one. That's always been her biggest one um, besides par- the parable books. And the parable books were only big, obviously, or, or are only as big as they are now because of what we've been dealing with in our society mm. since the election. Right. And so, yeah, I think Kindred and, and the parable books are probably worth reading. According to Stephen Kearse in that New York Times article, the second one, Parable of the Talents, is apparently a, an easier read, but also just a better read. Like the first one's a little bit of a slog, and the second one is also more prescient for like what we're dealing with now, <laughs> in terms of the huh. um, the Trump the Trumpian character that she has in there and the religious zealotry and all of that. So. I I, Fun. I guess I, I won't say that I can condone this review because I'm not sure. Um, I haven't read the parable books yet. But according to the New York Times, the second one is a good one to go with. So for anyone listening, check that one out. And I think that concludes Octavia Butler. Dude. <laughs> I know I just it's it's funny because we were just talking about creativity and writing and something that mm-hmm. I didn't include in my notes, but that I think I I thought of you um, when we were talking about writing and creativity was that she used to go to the library and just start opening books and reading passages. And if something inspired her, she would take that book and go sit down and start writing And sometimes she would be at the library all night just like reading from random passages and random Hmm. books, just just looking for inspiration, just like looking for something to ignite that um, that that fire. And I thought that was interesting because you had said um, that you weren't sure where you'd want to start with writing. And that seemed to be an effective place for her to begin and maybe is an uh a tactic worth looking into <laughs> worth exploring yeah yeah well and that it's <sighs> also funny that when you were talking about her as a kid like that that was me i wasn't cripplingly shy by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> oh. as a kid yeah no that was me <laughs> but i did spend an awful lot of time in the library yeah like a lot oh baby Deanna. getting inspired and reading yeah, my mom did that on purpose. She just recently told me that. She was like, yeah, I, I wanted to take you somewhere that would give you a good sort of foundational place to learn and grow and be inspired and be creative. Smart, mom. Way to go. Oh, yeah. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? 
Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Well, shoot. What are you excited about? Uh, WandaVision, dude. Oh, have you been watching? Because I have not yet. <gasps> is it good? It's really good. Ah, it's shit. so good. I gotta catch up. It's I gotta start real it. real fucking good. And then Alex and I have also been watching um, Eli Roth's History of Horror. Oh. And that's that's been a fascinating... It's on Shudder. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which I, I, I've been really enjoying learning about that we actually watched an episode that was about the history of like vampires in horror cinema and uh so it's funny that you mentioned the vampire novel did it start with um nosferatu uh yes Mm -hmm. in cinema yes yeah then obviously uh dracula and how uh why vampires are more popular and more enduring than like other creatures uh horror creatures like you know yeah. Frankenstein's monster or the wolf man or the invisible man things like that right there's a specific sort of sexuality to vampires um and how it's been a place to explore like taboo sexuality not just oh. in a violent sense but also it's like one of the first places that like queer stories were able to be sort of oh told man is that kind of like because when you're under the thrall of the vampire then you can't be held responsible for like the weird Kinda. shit that you are engaging in yeah <laughs> tarantino was was one of the people being interviewed and he was talking about dracula's daughter is that the name of it dracula's daughter yeah there was a film that it was like black and white really early and it was so sapphic and it made me think of Carmilla. And like yeah. all the, it's like all these anyway. So it that's really cool. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of gross for people who are a little squeamish because obviously some horror movies are very gross. Yes. Um, yes. But uh, I found it fascinating. And um, also I've just we've been going down the rabbit hole of WandaVision and it is a nerdy kid's dream come true. Like Alex is so animated every time he talks about like new things that he's seeing or figuring out and how it relates to comics that connect to this and what it means for the greater yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe and all of that. And plus, you know, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are fucking great. Catherine Hahn is in it. She's one of my oh, favorite I love her. actors. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just I also find it so endearing and, and fascinating that the Olsen who has had the most success as an adult is not Mary-Kate and Ashley. It's Elizabeth. Isn't that funny? But they also wanted to quit acting. Like, they kind of decided they, they didn't want to do well, that anymore. Right? Being a child star really fucks you up, especially in the 90s. I yeah. Think. Like, they were really fucked. Yeah. Um, 
And she never was that. She was in their movies, though, I remember, because I, when I told my mom <laughs> that she's Mary-Kate and Ashley's little sister, she was like, mind blown. Like, really? What? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, you don't remember all because I had a very distinct obsession with Mary Kate and Ashley and, and was part of their fan club back in the days where you had to like write a letter to be able to join. Oh, um, that's so Oh, yeah. Cute. And I had all their adventures of Mary Kate and Ashley, like their 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 detective movies. I read oh. novelizations of things oh. with them. It was it was. Ridiculous. Yeah, that's the but, cutest um, thing I've ever heard in but my life. Lizzie was in their videos oh all God. the time. That's so, so cute. I know. I had no idea. God, what's the Halloween one? I love that one. Double Trouble. Is that what it is? Uh, yeah. I well, double. Dub- I don't know. I can't remember. It, it, the the Olsen I, I twins. I watched It Takes Two about a million. Oh times. yeah, It Takes Two. That's and a good then, one. Oh yeah, Steve Gutenberg still seems like a cool guy. Kirstie Alley, not so much, but Steve Gutenberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Man. <laughs> and wow. that's literature, baby. That's Prince and the Popper. Oh. That's what it takes, too, is. It's Prince Shit, and the Popper. that's right. Oh, my God. This is taking me down a rabbit hole. Now I'm going to just go I'm find so all their fucking anyway. movies. I love it. But I love Elizabeth <laughs> Olsen, too. About. She's so cute. And she's clearly an she's Olsen. Great. Like her. She's very talented and she's very pretty to look at. Mm-hmm. And so is Paul <laughs> Bettany. <laughs> I Paul Bettany is oh, don't even. I have a deal with oh. a friend from high school who you are familiar with, who we were always like, if we ever meet Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly, you can go for Paul and I'll go for Jennifer. <laughs> oh damn! Ah, uh, <laughs> but together, hmm. maybe we should hmm. cut that. Nah. Anyway. 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 Thank you, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah. Now I have to go watch WandaVision, so um, bye. I'd be curious to know your thoughts. I think it's a very excellent, um, like, inspiring piece insofar as, like, creativity for television and um, the sort of research that went into it. And I, I, I read that they used, like, 19... 50s and 60s camera equipment that had been like refurbished to to record the episodes that were supposed to be paying homage to tv shows from that time that's really fucking cool honestly like that's that's an extra mile kind of thing that you don't you don't have to do that but it does make a difference when you have the budget it it's like makes such a difference i've, and I've been excited really and i just we just haven't sat down and done it because we were in idaho and then we were you know now we've been sort of ha- we've had a crazy week but i do want us to sit down and do it uh well then i'm gonna like go do that probably and um you know uh you guys can find us on social media if you want to we are at gwbb yeah. podcast everywhere um on twitter instagram facebook mm-hmm Yep, and you can email us. We are gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, otherwise, we you can will... can leave us a review. Yeah, you can leave us a review. Reviews are nice. They uh, help us out, except when they're mean, and then we don't like them. And otherwise, we love you guys, and thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moonbounce. Moon Bounce.